0: You can't build a whole house out of fireplaces and you can't do a whole rotator cuff repair out of anchors.
1: It can be such intense pain. They are one of the most comfortable people in the office.
0: As you know, I have a longstanding grievance about rotator cuffs, but unlike my views on other joints, for a while I had decided that Rotator cuffs were a fairly crap design but the shoulders a pretty interesting place. With your coaching I have flipped on the uh, shoulder and specifically the rotator cuff. So
1: it's good that you, it's good that you're still teachable at this age. I'm <laughs> yeah, not sure I, I can say the same.
0: Rotator cuffs got really good marketing. There's all kinds of other injuries in the body that are Probably at least, or if not more, common, but everyone knows about rotator cuffs. The numbers are pretty striking. Something like a 22% prevalence among adults, something like 460,000 surgeries a year. Those are just huge numbers.
1: It really is incredible the number of people who have shoulder pain. I'm stopped on the street by people who know me uh, more for shoulder pain than for knee pain. And you're right. If someone has a painful shoulder, regardless of their age, they're going to say, I have a rotator cuff or perhaps a rotator cup problem.
0: Those darn rotator cups. The other thing that's pretty striking, and we'll come back to this, but it's worth noting, and it comes from that original study, but this is also just widely known, that most people over age 40, would you say more than half over 45, if you ran them through an MRI, And had a look, you'd find something resembling some kind of, maybe not a full thickness tear, but it's going to be something going on in one of the muscles around the rotator cuff.
1: Without a doubt. I refer to this as rotator cuff disease because it really is a disease. The rotator cuff just starts to degenerate and it starts with a little fraying. It starts with some internal changes and that fraying can progress to become a full thickness tear. Over time,
0: what's going on here in terms of the structure of the rotator cuff? There's like we've got a couple of joints involved, we've got four major muscles, a bunch of different ligaments. But the gist is that there's four main muscles typically involved in making sure your arm doesn't fall off. Those are the ones that tend to be most actively involved in what we call a rotator cuff injury.
1: Absolutely. So, the one that's most commonly held responsible. For problems is the supraspinatus. It's not really involved in the physics of how the shoulder functions in terms of force couples, and it's the first to degenerate, but the infraspinatus in the back is more important and second most commonly injured. Interestingly, the teres minor, which is way down in the back, is almost never injured. And the subscapularis, which is really the boss of the rotator cuff up front, it's the biggest and most powerful, and it takes a big injury to injure that one.
0: So all of these collectively allow us to do a bunch of really complicated things. This is a ball and socket joint, and so it's got Uh, Not really truly 360-degree rotation in three dimensions, but at least in a plane, it's got more than 360 degrees of movement, which is possible because you have this big ball sitting in a shallow socket with a bunch of muscles that allow it to go pretty much any direction it wants to go
1: it's a vertically oriented joint and to think about the disparity in size just think of a golf ball on a golf tee and the socket as you noted the glenoid is relatively flat so we have the labrum to widen the socket and deepen it and what many people don't understand the shoulder has negative pressure so when we stick a scope in it one way you know that you got in you hear this little because you slid into it and you equilibrated the air pressure now the rotator cuff holds the humerus the humeral head down into the socket it doesn't pull it up. And if that rotator cuff is not functioning well, then the head of the humerus where the rotator cuff attaches can migrate upwards or proximally and do so statically if there's a large tear where it it migrates up and we develop a big problem because of that or can do it dynamically. So if you decided that you want to start pitching and you go outside and throw a 100 balls and your shoulder starts hurting, you probably exhausted your rotator cuff. It migrated up, impinged.
0: But also it's prone to dislocation or I guess a partial dislocation because that's part and parcel of having such a shallow socket.
1: Yes. um, There's a labrum uh, that encircles the glenoid and it serves to deepen the socket and widen the surface area. It also serves as the attachment point for the ligaments that connect the ball to the socket and prevent our shoulder from dislocating. The shoulder just wants to rotate. It doesn't want to translate. So it doesn't want to move forward or backwards. But if you start moving excessively or if you're struck or if you fall, then the shoulder can translate or move forward or backwards, thus pushing the ball off the front or the back of the socket. When you do that, it's usually accompanied by a labral tear, and that labral tear will enable the shoulder to continue dislocating.
0: So two questions. So one, you were talking about the negative pressure in the socket, and this is just a completely stupid engineering question probably, but I'm curious, if someone has a labral tear yeah. does that mean if it's severe enough that negative pressure no longer exists? Therefore, that's one of the reasons why you're more prone to dislocations.
1: So I don't think so. We still get that same okay. sound when right. we put a scope into a shoulder with a labral tear.
0: And so that's a completely, as I said, form- lapsed engineer question. The second one is if I've forgotten which supraspinatus is most is the most prone to being injured. Is that right? Yes. If, if I didn't have one, what couldn't I do?
1: That's a great question. You would probably lead a very normal and active life without the supraspinatus. To understand that, you need to understand the force couple. So we have one in, in the axial plane, so it's like putting you on a meat slicer, and one in a frontal plane or the coronal plane. And those two forces work ag- against each other so that the shoulder can rotate in, out, up, and down. Uh, and the supraspinatus doesn't really participate in those force couples. So it is far less important than most believe it to be. And it's also a lot smaller. Dissecting out the attachment of the rotator cuff is challenging because all the tendons really coalesce uh, when they attach to the humor. So it's hard to define which is which, but they've gotten a lot better at it in some anatomical studies. And the supraspinatus really has a very small footprint.
0: You've alluded to this already. Why is it so prone to injury? Now you've suggested that injury might be the wrong word, that it's, uh, it's more like a disease. This is something that seems to be progressive in an awful lot of us naked bipedal apes. (laughs) <laughs> we, we can't talk to our ape cousins and find out if they have the same problems. It's a little bit harder to know. But nevertheless, it seems more like a disease progression in many cases than like an acute process, even though there are obviously acute processes in many people. Why do you think that is? It seems to be a unique area of the body in terms of this early pathology, this degradation. You don't see it in the same way in other, other joints in the body that they have. By age 45, you're having this degradation on imaging and so on.
1: So. The number one cause of tendon-related pain, degeneration, and tears is tendinopathy or tendinosis. So we'll see that in quad tears or patella tendon tears. We'll see it in Achilles tears as well. But the supraspinatus is particularly vulnerable. In many of us, again, back to physics, we have what's called a cable-dominant shoulder or cuff tear pattern where there's this cable that runs transversely from front to back across the insertion and it takes the force away from the supraspinatus. It's like a suspension bridge model. And because there's no tension at the footprint attachment of the supraspinatus, then the body isn't going to grow that tendon or grow that footprint. So the tendon becomes weak, and the crescent, which is that thin remaining segment, just dissolves with, with, with time and goes away. We also think that there's an issue with vascularity. There's less blood flow to this region of the supraspinatus. And it does appear that our metabolism matters. They're finding that there's cholesterol deposition or uric acid deposition Hmm. and other changes in the tendon architecture at a microscopic level in people with lipid disorders and other metabolic disorders.
0: Reading about the evolution of the shoulder is fascinating because we can only speculate based on what we see in our own shoulders and what we see on our ape friends' shoulders and what we see in terms of skeletal remains of what we think were likely in the. uh This is the end of the free public preview of the Simple Vita podcast. For the full podcast, including a transcript and show notes, you can upgrade at simplevita.com. This podcast is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of information on this podcast or materials linked from this podcast is at the user's own risk. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they may have and should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any such conditions. And we will not respond to requests for medical advice.